Welcome back to Avery After Dark. As always, I am your host, Avery Ross. Before we get into today's episode, there was a ruling in the Sherry Papini case. Her abduction hoax landed her 18 months in prison, a year and a half. If you haven't listened to the Avery After Dark Sherry Papini episode yet, put that on your to-do list and check it out. It's a pretty crazy ending to that saga. Today's case is one of the most head-scratching mysteries I know of. It's an unsolved case out of Springfield, Missouri. The baffling story of three women who all disappeared from their home at the exact same time during the early morning hours of June 7, 1992. They are referred to as the Springfield Three in the media. The three consist of Stacy McCall, 18, Susie Streeter, 19, and Susie's mom, Cheryl Levitt, 47. So who were these women? Stacy's mother, Janice McCall, described her daughter as funny, bubbly, and said that her family called her Spacey Stacy. She worked as a local wedding dress model for some brands in Springfield and wanted to attend Missouri State University. As any 18-year-old, she had college on the brain. Cheryl Levitt, Susie's mother, was described as being very willful, a force to be reckoned with. Cheryl was a popular hairstylist in town. She had been married and divorced twice. Her most recent divorce was in 89, three years before all this went down. She and Susie, her daughter, were living together at the time, but the year prior, Susie had actually moved out a few times because of tensions between the two. I believe just your standard parent-teenager issues, nothing too major. But one of the times Susie moved in with an ex, his name was Mike Kovacs, and the two stayed at his grandma's. But he became more abusive towards her, so she left and eventually went back home. She would end up taking a restraining order out on him. Another time she moved out, she stayed with her brother, Bart Streeter, who was nine years older, and he had moved back to Springfield. So the two got a place together, but he had problems with alcohol and reportedly became abusive towards Susie one day when she came home and asked him to turn down the music. Apparently he was playing the music really loud and an altercation ensued. And Susie, again, ended up moving back home and told Cheryl what happened. After this, Cheryl sent Bart his birth certificate in the mail, kind of like saying, you're disowned and you were on your own. So there was obviously some tension in the family. Overall, though, Susie Streeter really looked up to her mom and loved her. She had dreams of becoming a hairdresser just like her mom. Susie's friends described her as the popular girl at school, a very happy and fun person. One of her friends, Niall Holdberry, joked with her a lot about her OCD ways. Apparently, Susie was very much a creature of habit. She liked her routine. She parked her car in the exact same spot every day. And Susie and Stacy were very close in grade school. The two had somewhat grown apart in their teenage years, but remained friends. And the time of the disappearances wasn't any ordinary day. Stacy and Susie had just graduated from Kickapoo High School. They received their diplomas that day and that evening headed out for a big party at 8.30 p.m. They were graduates and they were celebrating. I think we can all attest the feeling of graduating high school. Feels really good that summer between high school and college. I remember having so much fun 
you've closed one chapter in your life and you are ready for the next, it's a very exciting time for young people. They party into the night and Janice gets a call from her daughter Stacy at 10.30 p.m. And she tells her that the group of girls had decided to sleep over at one of their friend's houses, a pal named Janelle Kirby's. They were going to stay there for the night. Her mom says, okay, and Stacy promises to call her in the morning before the group had plans to head to a water park in Branson as a part of this graduation celebration. Susie and Stacy get to Janelle's and realize the house is super crowded. Janelle's family was in town and were taking up all the guest bedrooms. So Janelle reportedly told the girls, hey, you two can sleep on the floor. And this prompts Susie and Stacy to say, eh, I think we're going to leave. So the two agree to head back to Susie's house to spend the night. Susie and her mom, Cheryl, had just moved into that house two months prior, actually. It was a smaller house, but a dream home in Cheryl's eyes. And it was in a very safe and quiet neighborhood in Springfield where the two lived with their cute little dog named Cinnamon. They get ready to head back to Susie's and tell their friends they will meet them the next morning and they will all head to this water park. They left Janelle's at 2 a.m. and arrived back to Susie's house, where Cheryl Levitt had been hanging out for the evening. Cheryl had stayed in that night, painting some furniture, and spoke to a friend on the phone earlier in the night, and all was fine. Stacy follows Susie in their cars back to Susie's house, and police believe the two walked through the front door 15 to 20 minutes later at 2.15 a.m. to 20 a.m. And that's all we really know for sure. After that is one huge question mark. In those early morning hours of June 7th, 1992, something terrible happened. Sometime between 2.15 a.m. and 8 a.m., the three women disappeared, and we are still trying to piece together the clues to this day. Here is what we do know. The following morning, friends of the girls start calling about their plans to go to the water park but no one is answering the phone at Susie and Cheryl's. They leave messages, but hours pass, and they aren't hearing back. Janice, Stacy's mom, is also becoming concerned that she hasn't heard from her daughter. She realizes that Stacy wasn't at Janelle's, but at Susie's house, so she's trying to track her daughter down. She calls Susie's house over and over, and three messages later, no call back from her daughter. Time passes and eventually friends and family start showing up at Susie and Cheryl's home to check on them. The first of those people are Janelle Kirby and her boyfriend, Mike Henson. Janelle and Mike were supposed to ride to the water park with Susie and Stacy, and Janelle has been trying to reach them since 8 a.m. They have plans together, they aren't answering, so she just decides, let's go over and see what's going on. Shortly after noon, they head over. When they get there, they initially think, phew, Everything must be fine. Their cars are all parked in the driveway. But they did notice that Susie's car wasn't parked in her usual spot in the carport and noted that that was odd for her normal behavior. As I mentioned before, she always parked in her exact spot in the carport. Also something alarming that they see, they walk up to the front doorstep to find the globe lamppost has been shattered. Glass was all over the front porch. And Cheryl apparently kept her house very clean, and they just moved in. So in an act of being helpful, Mike swept up the glass, obviously destroying potential evidence. 
They knock on the door, no answer, and they twist the knob to find that the front door is unlocked, which, again, is odd. Cheryl had reportedly made sure her new house had secure locks, so this didn't ring normal for them to keep their front door unlocked. They walk inside, they call for the women, and it is eerily quiet. There is no one there except Cinnamon, Susie and Cheryl's dog. Cinnamon comes barreling out and is notably extremely agitated and is crying, obviously in a state of distress. I'm telling you, dogs will always give you a good feel of what's going on in a home. They find the lights are off with the TV on, but it's just static. It appeared they were watching something on TV and weren't around to turn off the TV show or movie after it ended. This was 92, so when you were finished watching a TV show or movie, you had to get up, go to your VCR, pop it back out, and turn off the TV. They find washcloths that the girls use to take off their makeup as well, so it's obvious that they were at least home for a bit, enough time to get settled for the night. They spot all three women's purses still in the house, all together lined up in Susie's room. The photo of the purses is strange. I think, ladies who are listening, I think you can attest to, usually when you go somewhere, you keep your purse with you, or if you come home, you hang it up, but they are all on the floor all together. Inside, they see that Cheryl's cigarettes are in her purse. This was a sign that something was off as Cheryl and Susie were both chain smokers and never left without their cigarettes. Inside Cheryl's purse is also $900 in cash, along with a bunch of uncashed checks. Nothing is missing from the purses, so robbery wasn't the motive here. There is nothing else missing from the home, except family does alert police that there seem to be a few photographs that are missing from the home. While Janelle was there, she got two separate phone calls from a strange male who was making lewd, perverted comments on the phone. Janelle picked up the phone thinking that this was possibly one of the women calling. She picked up on the first time this caller rang the line and then hung up on him. Then this strange man immediately called back. Janice, Stacy's mom, eventually heads over as well after not hearing from her daughter for hours. And she, too, says the home was very clean and didn't see much out of the ordinary. They walk into Sherry's room to find her bed is made. So either she never went to sleep that night or woke up early and had already made her bed. Then suddenly, the phone rings again. They let it go to voicemail this time, but listen to see who is leaving a message. Again, this could be the women calling. On the voicemail, again, was a strange male making very sexual and rude comments on the message. Janice said the message was disturbing and just gross. They think it's probably just a teenager playing a graduation prank. And this was the early 90s. So when a voicemail was played, you better get a good listen because it gets erased after you listen to it. After friends and family there played that stranger's voice message, it was deleted. A lot of people point fingers at this, but I truthfully don't believe they would have deleted this on purpose. This was Stacy's mother, Cheryl's family, friends that were very much trying to locate these women, and that was just how technology worked back then. The fact that they got so many calls from this 
mysterious, gross male is very suspicious and way too coincidental for me. These women disappear and the next day get a string of disturbing calls. Okay, just a prank. I can see that with one call, but for this person to call back three times, something about that feels off. As we know in these cases, oftentimes the killers and perpetrators will call family members to taunt them. It's a game for them. I don't know what happened with police. I would hope that they trace these calls, but it was never publicized if they did or if they were able to find out the caller's true identity. So this is just incredibly chilling. But Janice and family and friends still want to believe that this is just one big misunderstanding. In an interview, Janice is asked, why didn't you just call 911 after getting to the house and finding the women gone? And she stated it was because they didn't want to accept it. She said they all thought that those women were going to walk through the door any second, and calling 911 would mean it's an emergency. While they wait, and throughout the day, at least 18 people, consisting of friends and family, are traipsing through the house. And I know your little detective minds are listening to this and cringing. There was just a lot of people in and out of that house that day. You've got Cheryl and Susie's family. Stacy's family, and the girl's friends that they had plans with. While they are at the home, friends and family begin tidying up the house. They do dishes, they take out the trash, empty ashtrays. They even go so far as to repair a bent window blind. They all say they were just trying to be helpful. I do understand the sweeping of the porch light innocently. They claimed they were doing it to help out. Everyone is there stepping all over this glass. Okay, I can understand that. But for them to clean up the entire house, they have stated that this was a decision that haunts them. And I am curious about this a bit. Friends and family there made these consistent statements with police that Cheryl kept this house in pristine condition and said it was very clean inside, but then state that they do this big cleanup. That part isn't making much sense to me personally because if it was as tidy as they're all saying Cheryl kept it, there wouldn't be much to clean up. And honestly, why clean up at all? But the people there were family, friends, and loved ones. So maybe they just had that type of relationship where they would clean up for each other. But it is still confusing and frustrating. So they're cleaning up the house and have not called 911. But it's impossible to say, if I was them, I would have done this. Truthfully, you never know how you would react in that kind of situation. And hopefully none of us ever have to find out what that kind of pain feels like. But sad to say, police are not called until nightfall. And immediately note how these are three women who have disappeared. And describe it as unthinkable. One woman goes missing, okay, even two, a bit more unlikely, but for three grown women to disappear without leaving a trace? How could something like this happen? And now, just a quick word from today's sponsors. We're back. Three women going missing. The only other case that comes to mind that is similar would be the Fort Worth missing trio, where three girls were abducted from a mall parking lot after doing some Christmas shopping. This was in 1974, 
and remains unsolved. That case is really a punch in the gut. The main difference between them obviously being those girls were abducted from a public place, a mall, and the Springfield Three appear to be abducted from their home in the middle of the night. After being called at sundown, Springfield police immediately get to Cheryl and Susie's home and treat the entire house as a crime scene. Well, as much as they can. Investigators are looking at this as a missing persons case and foul play is suspected. They cross running away off the list very quickly. Three women up and running away together. Not happening. These women left behind their futures, homes, all their belongings, money, their dog, families. There's just absolutely nothing that would suggest they would run away. As you can imagine, the house is impossible for police to do an adequate investigation of because it's been completely contaminated and cleaned up by the friends and family all day. They couldn't recover that stranger's voicemail because it was deleted by the time that they got there. And they couldn't locate any DNA in the home or any other clues as to what happened to the women. So investigators start to look outward at the people involved with these women. And here's where we're going to break down the list of people who police had their eye on. They do look at Bart Streeter, the son of Cheryl and brother of Susie, because of the recent turmoil between the family. Police are always going to start close to home because statistically, it's most likely someone you know. They also look at Mike Kovacs, Susie's abusive ex-boyfriend, who she got a restraining order on. In that report, she stated that she was afraid of him and told police that he had made threats against her and also slashed her tires with a female accomplice. Another suspect, Susie's current boyfriend. His name was Dustin Reckla. Dustin and his friends reportedly broke into a mausoleum prior to the women disappearing and were stealing gold teeth out of corpses' skulls, a.k.a. grave robbing. Just despicable. They took these gold fillings to pawn shops to make money for drugs. Susie reportedly found out about what her boyfriend had done and thought that this was horrible and broke up with him. Good for you, Susie. But some believe it was actually her who turned the group into the police after finding out what her ex-boyfriend did. And she agreed to testify against her ex-boyfriend and the friends involved during their trial. This trial was only a couple months away. So police were looking at the idea that the ex-boyfriend and these friends may have done something to Susie to retaliate or quiet her. Police interviewed the men, and one of the friends, named Michael Clay, told police that he was really angry about Susie speaking with police about what they did, and told them that he hoped those women are dead. What a scumbag. Yes, it also begs the question... If these men were capable of desecrating a corpse, multiple corpses, vandalizing a graveyard, what else were they capable of? Sounds to me like Susie did the right thing in attempting to rid these men out of her life. It just makes me sad for her that she was ever around people like this. Although some of their statements were incredibly incriminating, Dustin and his friend group deny any involvement, and police can't find any DNA to link the disappearances to those men. 
The police chief at the time cleared them, although there are quite a few law enforcement officers in Springfield who wholeheartedly believe they should be investigated much more. There was also talk that Cheryl Levitt was dating a guy named Gerald Carnahan, a man who had been convicted of rape and murdering a woman named Jackie Johns. In 1985, he disposed of her body in Lake Springfield. He also had attempted abduction on an 18-year-old. He had robbery on his track record. The list goes on and on. So this was yet another suspect. This is a man who goes after women. Disgusting. So police look at him as someone who, again, is likely capable of this kind of crime. Safe to say there are quite a few losers and low-life men around these women at the time of their disappearances. Niall, Susie's friend, has done interviews and believes that whoever took these women was someone that they knew. Based off the state of the home, she believes someone came to the door and the perp was someone that the women were familiar with. Whoever it was had to kidnap and subdue all three of these women. So does that point to more than one suspect? Weeks pass, no news, no sign of the women. One day, police get a tip from a woman who called in and said the morning of Susie's disappearance, she saw Susie driving a big green-colored van two miles away from her home. The woman told police that Susie appeared frightened, and she heard a man's voice coming from the back seat yelling at her, something along the lines of, you better keep driving in a threatening manner. Police stop anyone in the area with a light-colored and style van, but this unfortunately yields no results. Every day that goes by without any trace of the women, people's hope dims a bit more. Another tip comes in, and it points to Robert Craig Cox as the individual responsible. Cox was once an army ranger and even soldier of the year, but later in his life, he was tied to a murder of 19-year-old Sharon Zellers in Florida. He was actually convicted and sentenced to death, but that verdict was controversially reversed. The judge said, we just don't have enough evidence. So lo and behold, he ends up in California where he abducts two women. He is caught there and charged and served nine years and released in 1990. Sharon's family was obviously devastated that he walked free from Sharon's case as their daughter was murdered by this man. And there is actually quite a bit of evidence that points to him being her killer but overall, just a real injustice for Sharon and her loved ones. The reason people connect Cox with this case is because he had moved back in with his parents in Springfield just weeks before the women disappeared and had a connection to Stacy's family. He worked at a car dealership that Stacy's father worked at, and police theorized that Cox could have seen Stacy one day and followed her that evening, which is plausible based on his record. He becomes a person of interest and is brought in for questioning. They ask him about that night where he was. And a lot of his answers were dodgy, didn't really add up. But his girlfriend at the time said, he has a solid alibi. Robert was at church with me the next morning, so he couldn't have done it. 
Months later, Cox is arrested for aggravated robbery in Texas, and his girlfriend completely retracts and changes her story. She says the two weren't at church, and she actually has no idea where he was that evening. She told authorities that Robert told her to tell police that. Then Robert's parents pop in and say, oh, um, he was actually with us that night. So everyone's lying for this guy. So while he's serving time in Texas, a reporter from Springfield, pretty dead set on this case, heads down there to interview him to see if he can get any information out of him about the Springfield Three. The interview is filmed, and in it, Cox speaks of the three women and says, quote, I know they are dead. I'll say that. I know they are dead. End quote. The reporter continues to press him for information. How would he know that? What else does he know? And now, another quick word from today's sponsors. We are back. So as the reporter asks Cox for more information, he says that he's not going to say any more until his 82-year-old mother dies. He doesn't want to upset her, he says. A lot of police that have spoken to him face-to-face believe that he wants attention. He doesn't ever really give any useful information, and by that, any inside information. All of his statements are blanket statements or details that have been revealed in the media. He jerks police around quite a bit, so he stays a person of interest, but gives nothing in regards to where the women are or what happened. You may have noticed, in almost every well-known unsolved case, there is at least one prisoner that pops up saying, hey, I have information. A lot of times they want to use this as a bartering tool with police. If I give you information on XYZ, can I get an early release? Whether they actually know anything or were involved is always questionable. All of the suspects I have mentioned, plus numerous others that lived in Springfield and had questionable records, were investigated. Many of these men remain suspects and persons of interest, but no arrests have ever been made in 30 years. So another really interesting player in this case is a reporter named Kathy Baird, who is a journalist and amateur detective. She's a Springfield local and starts looking into the case and gets a tip that the women are buried underneath Cox Hospital. I know, same name as Robert Cox. Strange connection there. But the tip states that the women were placed there when they went missing. It was actually just a dirt lot. Police don't take her tip too seriously, so she works with a man who uses a radar scanner that can detect human remains underneath concrete. This man didn't know the specifics of the case that Kathy was working on. She didn't want that to interfere with the findings, so she just told him, notify me if you find anything. Sure enough, he ran his detector over the hospital lot and notified her that he found three separate images of bodies. He told her that he sees these kinds of images when he goes over older graves. Kathy then tells him that she's investigating the Springfield Three. Police say, well, that is implausible because that hospital was under construction during the times of the disappearances, and they would have found them when they were doing construction. Many others believe that this would be an opportune time and place for the killer to place these women, but police don't seem to think so. 
In an interview with Crime Watch Daily, Kathy is asked who she believes committed this crime. The reporter is actually Kim Goldman, Ron Goldman's sister. That is the Nicole Brown Simpson murder case. He was her friend that was murdered alongside her that night at her condo. Kim is asking her questions about the case and what Kathy has uncovered. Kathy states that she believes that either Susie or Cheryl were the target, but won't elaborate any further. She asks, well, who do you think did it? And Kathy says she believes she knows the motive of the person or people who took the women, but won't say what it is. In turn, the production team gets mad at her. They ask, well, why are you even doing this interview if you're not going to tell us? Her response is because their story needs an ending. The producer of Crime Watch Daily is interrupting the interview and states his confusion. Why is she talking in code, giving half answers? Kathy states, well, she lives in Springfield and is scared for her safety. She has received threats and was told to leave this case alone. She says she's been followed by cars and an individual mentioned to her that he works for a person that make people disappear. Kim asks, well, who's threatening you? And she won't say. She ends the interview saying that there's a reason this case has never been solved. As you can imagine, a lot of people jump down her throat in the comments. Well, why did she do this? Why won't she give details? Why won't she say who took the women? I do understand the families, the public want answers. But I also sympathize with the fact that this woman may truly be scared for her own safety. The thing about these kinds of programs, Dateline, any investigative show, is the crew comes into town with their cameras turned on, ready to get the most salacious and impressive sound bites about a case. They want to pump up their viewership with these jaw-dropping interviews and accusations. And then the crew leaves and heads back to L.A. or New York. Now, these people who have come forward with information about these incredibly dangerous people pointing fingers are left high and dry. It's also a world where everybody sues everyone all the time for everything. So for her to get on national TV and say, yes, I think so-and-so abducted and killed these women, at the very least, she's looking at a lawsuit. At the very worst, those people could track her down and come after her. It's important to note that Kathy has stated she has gone to police with all the information she has, and police question some of her tips because she has enlisted the help of psychics, which some police frown upon. At the end of the day, Kathy is on her own, and she doesn't have a task force or police behind her to protect her. It's a risk to come out on TV and accuse someone of a decades-old kidnapping and murder. A huge risk. Looking at the evidence, I lean towards the target being Susie or her mother, Cheryl, as well. Either they thought Cheryl was home alone, as the girls were gone all night, or they were following the girls and it led them back to Susie's house. And I agree with Susie's friends who believe the person who took these women is someone that they knew. Looking at the evidence, I think... The girls got home, dropped their purses, and turned on something to watch on TV when they were interrupted by someone knocking on the door. I believe they were possibly lured outside and there was some kind of altercation resulting in that porch light being broken. 
The fact that the door was unlocked but closed leads me to believe that the women were ordered to come out of the house where they were told to get into the car with a perp and were kidnapped. From there, it makes me think back to that witness who stated she saw Susie driving that van that next morning. There could be something to that. This is my best guess based on the evidence and information that has been revealed to the public. It's my opinion. You all can form your own opinions now that you know the full story. But obviously, I still have a million and one questions. There isn't anything that is real clear in this case. But what about you? What sticks out to you from this case? Are there any details or specific evidence that you think points to the person who did this? Let me know in the comments. I always love hearing your theories on these cases. In an ideal world, I would be able to sit down with all of you and discuss these cases with you because you all really do have such great insight and see things that I don't even see. A really sad case overall and... What a heartbreaking 30 years this has been for the families involved. This case has garnered quite a bit of publicity. The investigators have a room full of evidence and tips on the case and the women. I do hope that one day there are answers and these women can receive the justice that they so wholeheartedly deserve. <laughs>